0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have a really unusual but very exciting show for you today. We're going to take a step back from the science of anesthesia and critical care, and we're going to talk about cooking. That's right. I have a fabulous guest with me today, Miles Snyder, who is a chef and the founder of 8020 Cooking, and he's going to talk to us about his own career, but also how we can cook in a healthy way on a busy schedule, and I'm excited to learn, and I know you all are too. Miles, thanks so much. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit. We certainly you're the first chef we've had on the show. So, tell us a little bit about you, how you got interested in cooking and how you became a chef.
1: Amazing. Yeah. So, I'm I'm honored to be on the show. I think that it's cool because you come from the world of healthcare and I come from the world of food and I think that they actually have a lot of overlap. Like food and and cooking is a is a form of healthcare. Um, And if you want to be a healthy person, I think that's, you know, one of the most important things you could do. And that's a lot of what I talk about online and with my students and all that. So I think we're going to find a bunch of cool overlap to to talk about Um, in terms of my background and story. So I I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I went to school in New York City, studied economics. Um, and then after college, I decided that I wanted to go and train as a chef. I'd grown up in a family where food was very important. My mom, um, cooked professionally for a while. And so I was always surrounded by food and I always really loved cooking. And so I thought it would be kind of something that I would do just temporarily after college as like a fun little thing. Um, but I ended up really, like really falling in love with the, you know, the practice of, of cooking. I cooked professionally for a little bit. I worked for. A Food startup for a little bit. Um, I kind of detoured and went into the tech world for a little bit, um, and now I'm I'm really back in you know f- full time focused on on cooking. And um, a couple of years ago, I started doing more kind of like what you would call in today's parlance, like the creator stuff. You know, I I started um, putting stuff online on TikTok and Twitter and building up a newsletter kind of with the intention of just sharing the stuff that I had learned um, and teaching other people how to cook well at home. And, you know, my style of cooking and certainly the the, um, style of cooking that I try to share the most is I try to make it approachable, I try to make it easy, and I really try to help people understand the fundamentals so that they can, um, you know, enjoy the process more and have it be a little bit easier and not get so stressed out by cooking and, and things like that. Um, and then last year, I started a company called 8020 Cooking. That is my main focus now. And 8020 Cooking is an online cooking school and community for home cooks. So I take a group of students at a time and we go through a program together and I teach them how to cook, specifically focused on building those foundational skills and learning how to cook without recipes so that you don't have to kind of be relying on recipes and you're able to get a little bit more creative, trust yourself a little bit more, kind of troubleshoot on the fly, things like that. Um, so yeah, I've been full-time focused on 8020 20 cooking now for a little less than a year and, um, and continue to do a lot of the like content and creator stuff online.
0: Very cool. So, you know, obviously, our listeners are all very familiar with the training one needs to become a doctor. But yep. what you know, I obviously not an expert here, but I've met people who have, for example, trained at the Culinary Institute of America. That's like one way to you know learn to cook. Other people who have done you know essentially got in on the entry floor, cleaning dishes at a restaurant, and then worked their way up and learned to cook kind of on the job. Are these all different ways? I mean, is there a preferred? Like, yeah. if someone's listening to this, thinking. Forget it. I'm done with medicine. I want to go be a chef. You know, is there like a route or is it kind of different people do it different ways?
1: It's both a little bit. So different people do it different ways. Um, and I'm a firm believer that there's no one way to do it. Like, um, have you ever heard of like a musician being classically trained? You know that term? Mm-hmm. So like, from my understanding, that's if they, you know, like go to a Juilliard type of school and study music theory and, um The classical training of the cooking world would be French culinary training. So that's what you get at Culinary Institute of America. That's what you get at Johnson & Wales. Like Most of the big cooking schools come from this French tradition because what the French did is they were sort of the first – uh, in the Western world, to really like codify cooking and give specific names to a lot of processes and create like a system for how to run a kitchen. So, if you're classically uh, trained in cooking, you come from that French culinary tradition. And that's a great way to learn how to cook. Like, it's very comprehensive, it's very broad. You're going to learn a lot. Um, But there are plenty of examples of chefs who came up in entirely different ways. So there's like kind of the way that I learned how to cook, which was primarily through my mom. You know, like I I learned a lot from her growing up. And then I actually went to cooking school in Mexico. So the cooking school that I went to was focused much more on Mexican cuisine, which is not, you know, classically trained, classical training at all. Very different set of kind of techniques and skills that you learn, um, but really useful in its own right and i just did a very short cooking school program and then i went right into a restaurant and cooked there and i learned more cooking in a restaurant than i think you really can even learn in cooking school so you know if someone is thinking about becoming a chef if they're very serious about it and want to work in restaurant kitchens i think it can be helpful to have some kind of base of of some formal instruction um but i don't think it's necessary to do a 4 year culinary institute of america program by any means and i think that You know, this is what I tell my students now is like the way you learn to cook is by cooking, like the more reps you can get in the kitchen, the better. And that's actually why for a lot of chefs like they just working in restaurants becomes the way that they learn the most because they're spending more hours cooking than they would in any kind of um, like school environment. And so, yeah, so that's kind of, like, where the, the training comes in. But you can see examples of phenomenal chefs who who have everything from being self-taught to having really strong family traditions to being classically trained to just, like, getting into the restaurant world very early and, and absorbing.
0: Um, I, I personally believe there's no right way to do it. Right. Um Tell, so let's let's talk about. We obviously have an audience that, and uh, not not limited to these people, but uh, you know a lot of our audience are healthcare providers. They are, and and a good chunk of them are trainees who are working a huge number of hours a week. They're very busy. I can tell you that when I was a trainee, I uh, ate at the hospital cafeteria ninety percent of my meals, and within that, a lot of them might not have even been at the cafeteria. Maybe it was grabbing a packet of, you know, crackers off of the shelf. So, we do not necessarily eat very healthy when we are trainees. And, and then those habits can carry on. You know, you're busy and then you may be working slightly less hours when you're done with training, but now you've got kids and et cetera. And, you know, so I think people are daunted by the idea of cooking for themselves that it's going to take too long. It's too involved. They don't know how to do it. They don't have the time. So, what do you recommend for people who would like, they'd like to eat healthy? They'd like to cook for themselves and their family, but they don't have a lot of time. Is that doable? And if so, what do you tell people? How can they do it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely doable. It just requires a bit of planning. That's what I'm talking about. Like, I'm very empathetic to someone who's working a, a really intense job, doesn't have a lot of hours. And especially on top of that, if they have a family and kids and, and all that, I mean, it's you know, and if, so if you're in that situation and you're also trying to cook your, for yourself, more power to you because it's it's not easy, but it definitely can be done with a little bit of planning. And this is something that I these are the types of things I talk about in my course a lot, which is kind of these strategies that once you learn them, they're going to make cooking a little bit easier. So like a, a couple specific examples Um If you can do some sort of basic meal prep, you're going to make your life a lot easier. So if you can dedicate like one, two, maybe even three hours a week, even if that's on a Sunday, day or the one day week that you have off to to cooking and doing that strategically you can make a ton of progress so like a couple of things that i'll do at the beginning of the week i'll make a really big batch of some kind of grain so like i like doing a bone broth rice because it's a little healthy it's really versatile but you can make some rice you can make some quinoa you can make something like that make that have you know a, a big batch of that keep that in your fridge that's like a great foundation that you can build a bunch of meals out of Um, and then meal prepping some kind of protein, like you could do chicken thighs, you could make meatballs, you could, um, cut up like a bunch of dice up a bunch of steak and have that all ready to go. Maybe even do, you know, a couple of those if you have time. And then you have like some proteins that, that are there. And then the third thing that I'll do is like roast a bunch of vegetables. So I'll go to my farmer's market, pick out a bunch of vegetables that are in season or go to the grocery store and like very simply just chop those up olive oil, salt, and roast them in the oven. So then, you know, and all of that can be accomplished in an hour, including prep for the most part. So then all of a sudden you've got like a big batch of grains, some roasted vegetables, and some meat that you can that you can go throughout the week. So that's great. Like you might get, you know, five meals worth of, of stuff out of that. Then the question becomes like, okay, well, how do I make this a little bit more interesting? Because no one wants to be eating like – chicken thighs and roasted vegetables and rice with no other flavors so what i tell people a lot is like there's huge power in having um condiments condiments and sauces so one of the other things i'll usually do at the beginning of the week is just prep like a very basic couple of sauces so i love doing like a yogurt sauce you know some greek yogurt lemon garlic salt uh, uh, maybe some chopped herbs have that in there Um, like an herb sauce. So any kind of riff on like a pesto or a chimichurri, you know, you can just take a bunch of fresh herbs, garlic, Parmesan, uh, maybe a little nuts or seeds, olive oil, and like blitz that in a food processor. And you've got like a really great sauce. Um, I'll shoot you a link so you can share this. But like, I have a bunch of sauce recipes that I've published online that are all meant to kind of be in this vein. So like a yogurt sauce, an herb sauce, or roasted red pepper sauce, like you know, various riffs on tomato sauce. If you have a couple of those in your fridge, well, it like it's really easy to kind of make things feel more exciting. So maybe you're having rice and chicken with a yogurt sauce one night, and then you're having, um, you know, rice, meatballs, and an herb sauce the next night. Like it makes things feel a little bit more exciting. Um, and then there are other condiments that you can add on top of that. So like keeping a lot of fresh herbs on hand, you can easily just, you know, add some fresh herbs on, on top of what you're eating that livens it up, having some like vinegars, some olive oils, um, and some like good spices, all of those things you can just like add to these things that you've already prepped in advance and get a lot more flavor out of them. So that's kind of what I tell people is like meal prep, some of these like basics, And then have some of these like condiments and sauces and pantry staples on deck that are going to help you just add a lot more flavor in there to keep it exciting.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, you know, it's funny for a long time, we've gotten away from this a little bit, but you know, I would make a big pot of something on the weekend and then we'd eat it all week, which is a less interesting version of what you just said, because it's the same thing, right? I mean, it's, it's it's not having to cook during the week because you've got the thing from the weekend, but It's eating the same thing every day. And what we found is that even if my wife and I could handle that, eating the same thing every day, the kids just, they would, they'd like it for the first day or two. And then they'd be like, come on, you know, we can't eat this again. So I like the idea of keeping it varied, like kind of prepping on the weekend when you have time, but then being able to vary it up during the week
1: yeah i mean kind of a, a little bit maybe of a middle ground there is is one of the things i teach in my course is the braise technique so like braising a piece of meat you know you're basically slow cooking it in liquid till it's fall apart tender and um like a lot of times i'll tell people you know braise a chuck roast or something like that with a very like simple braising liquid so it's not flavored too intensely one way or the other and then that braised meat could go on top of a rice bowl. It could go in a sandwich. It could go over some pasta. And so you do have that kind of like one thing that you're using again, but you're able to change up the context and keep it a little bit more exciting because I do think that that's a lot of what it is. Like you asked the question of how can people, you know, cook their own food, not have it take too much time if they're busy. And I think a lot of people, they kind of know that they can do it at some level, but what they're really looking for is how do I make this more interesting and exciting? So I'm not eating, the same chili that I made on Sunday, five days in a row.
0: That's right. Absolutely. So one of the things, um, well, let me ask you about, about the braising. So, you know, again, coming from a place of very little knowledge, I mean, is it, you, anybody can go to the store, you can buy a, you know, a a beef, you know, pot roast. Um, and do you just put it in like a pot and water and maybe some, some salt and pepper and then just let it go on low all day? Like what exactly is that how you do it?
1: Yeah. So, again, I'll send you a link that I I created on my Substack, like a a breakdown of exactly how to do a braise. And so the idea is that you can follow that method, switch out even like the type of meat or maybe even like the flavor profile you're going for. But the core method is the same. And I'll break it down for you. It's basically you take any type of meat that's like uh, there are certain cuts that are better for braising. So chuck roast, short ribs, shanks, things like that. Um, And the first thing you're going to do is sear it on the outside to get some browning on the outside of the meat, which is going to really help develop that flavor. Then you're going to cover it three-quarters of the way with liquid. So you could use um, water. You could use uh, beef stock or chicken stock, which is my preferred way to do it because you get a little more flavor there. You can use a mixture of, like, wine and beef stock. You see that in a lot of Italian recipes. But some kind of liquid, you're going to cover it three-quarters of the way, cover the pot, and put it in the oven low and slow, As long as really as long as you can do it until it's fall apart tender. The one thing about that is it requires you to kind of like be there, not necessarily babysitting it, but you want to be home if you have something like that in the oven. Um, So what a lot of people have now, I think they're fairly common, are either like a, a slow cooker or an instapot. And so those are slightly different. The slow cooker basically does exactly what you do in the oven, but it's plugged in and it's kind of temperature controlled. So you could have that thing on, even if you're at the hospital all day working and not have to worry about that. So if, you know, like I think a slow cooker is a really great investment for someone who wants to be kind of like batch cooking more of their meals. And then the other one is an Instapot. So what the Instapot does is it actually creates a uh, a pressure sealed environment Um, that the, the pressure inside of that pot is very, very high and very intense. So while braising a chuck roast might take you three hours, four hours in an oven, in an Instapot, it can be done in an hour. And that's also a really nice thing that a lot of people have. Um, and there's some pretty cool brands on the, on the internet now that you can buy that one aren't going to break the bank for either a slow cooker or an Instapot. And they're also very versatile. You know, some of them function like as a rice cooker or, um, you know, Maybe uh, your listeners are too busy to be baking their own sourdough bread, but like a proofing basket, and you know, things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually have an Instant Pot that we love. And uh, I have found that, like, I used to make a pulled pork that I'd put in a slow cooker for like eight hours. And yep. we could do it in an hour, hour and a half, you know, with the um, Instant Pot. So it makes a huge difference. Um, so if you're going to do it in the oven, you know, low and slow, what is that from a temperature standpoint? How low is low?
1: Yeah, good question. So one of the things about ovens is that actually like you know, if we temperature probed your oven and my oven set at the same temperature, they're going to be different because they they they're, there's actually a pretty big range. So I tell people like with a with a braise you probably want to go aim for like 300, 325, but what you want to do is put it in the oven, give it about, you know, 20 maybe 30 minutes to to kind of come up to tenth, and then just lift the lid and check on it. And what you really are looking for is a very, very gentle simmer, meaning there should be like a bubble kind of bubbling up to the surface every now and again, but not. it should not be at a boil. So basically, you want to check that. And if it looks like it's kind of boiling or about to boil, adjust the temperature down. If it's not moving at all, adjust it up a little bit. Um, and basically, with a braise, you're looking for that gentle simmer. You don't want it to boil. If it boils, it's going to toughen up the meat. Um, whereas if it's, you know, if it's below a a gentle simmer, it'll cook eventually, but it's just going to take a really long time.
0: Yeah. You mentioned having some just fresh herbs around. I love adding fresh herbs to things, you know, are there certain herbs that you think hold their flavor better over the course of, let's say a week rather than just the day you purchase them? What are those? So
1: it's actually more about how you store them. Um, I would say like for me, herbs are one of those things where it's like, what is the flavor profile you gravitate towards? What are the herbs that you like? Like, Figure out the answer to that question and then just buy the ones you want. For me personally, it's like uh, cilantro, parsley, dill, and mint are probably the ones that I have most often. I I also love basil. Um, Basil is a little different because basil hates the cold, so you want to store basil outside of the fridge. But for all those other ones I mentioned, what you want to do is take a cup, put a little bit of water in there, so about an inch of water, and then put the stems of the herbs into that cup. So basically, you'll have like a bouquet of herbs spilling out over a cup and then take a Ziploc bag and place that over the herbs and put it in your fridge. Those herbs will keep a very, very, very long time. Um, A lot of people make the mistake of just putting the herbs in a bag and keeping them in the fridge and they just won't hold that long. So that's the best way to do it. The second best way to do it is to get some paper towels, run them underwater, squeeze all the water out so they're just a little bit damp, and then roll the herbs inside of those paper towels, put those in either like a um, Ziploc bag or a Tupperware container, and put them in the fridge that way. And you're going to get at least a week of storage out of out of herbs like that if you um, if you store them that way. So that's like another one of those little things that, you know, I think a lot of people... It's, like, these very small things that make a big difference around, like, efficiency and keeping things good long so you're not wasting stuff, you're not having to go to the store all the time. Um, And, yeah, I just think having fresh herbs around, like, I always tell people that there are basically... I'm, I'm trying not to go down another rabbit hole, but like adding fresh herbs to to things is a really easy way to just like brighten up the flavor and, and add some really nice flavors. The other thing is adding some acidity to things. This is something that like, you know, a lot of chefs have internalized, but a lot of home cooks haven't is like the importance of acidity. So if you roast some vegetables, um, you know, try 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 a piece of broccoli that you've roasted and then squeeze a tiny bit of lemon juice on there and then try that same piece of broccoli it's going to taste more complex, more dynamic, more delicious, more interesting and you can kind of experiment with that so a squeeze of lemon over, you know, meat or vegetables or rice, uh, de- a splash of vinegar, things like that um those those things make a really big difference and will make your food much more interesting and exciting and then the final thing what I consider to be the most important skill in cooking is um, using salt the right way. So salt is really like the most important ingredient in cooking. And it's what, it's what we use to make food taste more like itself. It's what we use to like draw out the existing flavors in food. So I hear from people all the time that are like, you know, my food doesn't taste as good as the food that I eat in restaurants. And 90% of the time, it's because of improper use of salt. Like the skill that kind of distinguishes chefs from cooks is chefs really know how to use salt. Um, and then I would say acidity is like the second second one.
0: So can you give us some some salt tips? I'm so curious. Like what does that mean? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so the first is to um, like get what's called a salt cellar. So basically this means like a, a container that holds your salt that you keep near your stove And it should be big enough that you can reach your hand in there to grab salt. I see people at home cooking with like salt shakers or like, you know, the the grinders. And the problem is that you're not really going to get enough salt using those. But the skill that you want to develop is being able to pick up a pinch of salt with your fingers and measure by feel. That's, like, a really, really core skill that chefs have. So you want to have easy access to it that you can reach in, grab it, and then sprinkle it on food and really start to take note of, like, how much do I feel in my hand? How much am I using and how does that – um, you know, how does my food taste as a result? Do that consciously every time you cook and eventually it'll become subconscious. You know, you'll just be able to grab it, season it. We all know those people who kind of just flow in the kitchen and they're just sprinkling salt here and there and tasting it. Um, so measuring salt by feel is number one. Number two is, um, tasting as you go. So salt takes a while to permeate food. So if you're making like a stew or a braise or a soup or something like you want to salt it give it some time to absorb and then taste it and then salt it again. Like if you add all the salt at the beginning or all the salt at the end, it's going to, it's not going to be properly seasoned, but if you are adding it in layers, that food is going to get seasoned all the way through and you're going to know when it's enough and not go into that territory of, of too much. Um, You know, another thing we learned in restaurants is just like salt your food from up high. So hold your fingers, like, You know six to ten inches above your food and that salt is going to fall in a more uniform even distribution all over the food if you're just salting you know from an inch on high like it's going to fall in these little clumps and there's going to be parts of it that have too much salt and parts of it that, that don't have enough so like if you go to next time you go to a restaurant and look in the kitchen you'll see like a chef salting a steak and they're they're like 10 inches above it just letting it you know fall in that in that even layer um but yeah, I think those are the big ones. I think developing that skill of of uh, measuring salt based on
0: feel and then tasting as you go are going to be the the two most important things. Yeah, that's great. So you know, what about I've heard like eggplant, for example, that you yep. should salt like pre salt it. I know a lot of uh, with meats. I mean, turkey, yep. brining a turkey, for example, right? You're putting a ton of salt on it. Um, that is ne- that's not the amount of salt you'd ever want to eat, but it does things to. So so when do you want to think about kind of pre salting? in a way that's going to, you know, almost brine something?
1: Yeah, great question. So I'd say this first and foremost, like if if it's going to stress you out and you feel like you're having to like keep track of crazy schedules and all that, just salt your food right before you cook it. That's a, you you can do that and that's totally fine. Um, The, you know, brining is a very powerful practice um, and brining refers to just salting something in advance of cooking it. So whether that's a, you know, a turkey or a steak, and there's basically two types of brine. There's the wet brine where you dissolve salt in water and then put the meat into that. And then there's a dry brine where you just apply salt directly.
0: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those, too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause or reschedule. Head to Factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at Factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off.
2: What's the easiest choice you can make?
0: All right. And we're back with Miles Snyder to talk more about brining.
1: I say, don't worry about the wet brine for the most part. It's like a lot of work, more equipment, more cleanup. Like if you want to do that on Thanksgiving, great. But in your day to day, don't worry about it. Um, But the dry brine is a really powerful thing. And basically what I'll do is like if I'm cooking a piece of meat, especially a bigger piece of meat, so a thick steak, a, a whole chicken, things like that, I will try and salt it like a day ahead of when I cook it. If I have time, And, you know, if it's easy and kind of part of my existing workflow, I'll do it. Um, And what happens there is basically that when you salt a piece of meat ahead of time, the salt has time to actually permeate through to the center of the meat. And what it does is when you salt a steak, if you were to salt a steak and just leave it out there, after about 30 minutes, you'd notice that these beads of moisture form on on the top of the steak. And that's basically salt is drawing out moisture from the steak. When you give it even more time, though, that moisture gets reabsorbed back into the steak and the salt kind of permeates through to the center. So by dry brining, you get a piece of meat that's seasoned uh, more evenly all the way through, um, which helps the texture a lot. And um, it also has more moisture in there because that salt has kind of like locked in that moisture a little bit. So it's really nice if you have the time. Um It's really, I think most impactful when you're cooking big pieces of meat so whole chicken if you're going to you know um braise a chuck roast or you know cook a pork tenderloin or something like that if you're going to make like a thin steak that you're just going to sear in a cast iron it helps but it's it's not super necessary and then overall it's just the type of thing that it's like it's a little bit more of i would say like an advanced technique you know it 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 like If you operate a restaurant, you're probably going to do that because you have time and the procedures and the planning to to make it work. Um, I say do it if you can find a way to fit it in your schedule, but don't stress about it if not. Um, And then to answer your question briefly about like eggplant and other things, there are certain vegetables that have a very high water content. So depending on how you want to cook them, sometimes you'll salt them ahead of time and give that uh, water time to release before you cook them. So like Eggplant can be like that, but to be honest, I rarely do it. Like sometimes if I'm making, say like a cucumber salad, I'll chop up cucumbers, salt them, and then put them in a colander and give them like 20 minutes for that water to drip down. And it just concentrates the flavor of the cucumber a little bit, but again, not super necessary and certainly isn't going to be the difference between like a good meal and a great meal.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. What about canned fish? Canned fish is one of these things that is so easy, right? If you' yep. at least if you like it, I mean, you can pop open a can of sardines. It's very healthy and it takes zero time. Um a lot of people don't like sardines, but you know what I mean? Um, yep. you can do canned salmon, you can do other things. Do you have an opinion on that? Is it a good thing to work in not not so good?
1: It's great. I love canned seafood. um I think that it's cool because nowadays there's also so many brands that are really good about kind of how they're sourcing the quality of the fish that they're sourcing, the sustainability of what they're doing. So you have like amazing brands like Patagonia Provisions has a good seafood um, line. Um, Jose Gourmet is a Portuguese brand that makes really good canned seafood. Um, It's amazing. And canned seafood actually is like, it can be fresher and better than some of the frozen seafood that you're buying because it's usually like, caught cooked and then canned immediately and that's a very good preserving technique so you're getting access to really really high quality seafood um so yeah i love it like and you know there's plenty more than sardines as you mentioned you can get everything from like tuna to um you know salmon you can get squid you can get uh oysters mussels so there's a lot like i'll use um, Patagonia Provisions has these really great muscles that I've thrown into pasta. That's a great way to just add an easy protein, um, like some some canned tuna that I will just like add a little bit of mayo and some lemon juice and some fresh herbs and eat that on top of a salad. Um, another one that I love doing is you know like a lot of if you go to Whole Foods now you can buy seaweed and I'll just get like um, some pieces of, uh, like nori seaweed, some canned seafood of, you know, whatever I have and like a mashed up avocado and I'll make little like, you know, seaweed kind of like sushi bites with that. Like, and that's something that I'll do when I need a very quick, healthy, easy lunch and like it's less than 10 minutes of prep time. It's great.
0: That's awesome. Do you have, um, Thoughts on smoothies. I mean, that is another thing people do a lot. It's very fast. Throw whatever you want in a blender. I've also heard that, you know, maybe you're losing some of the health benefits when you just blend the the thing to death. I mean, you know, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily, I don't have any opinion on the health benefits of it. I, I don't, I can't say that I know whether or not that's true. Um, I think smoothies are great. Honestly, they're like, they're a really easy way to get a lot of nutrients in, Um, and kind of like, especially if you're the the type of person who wants to hit certain macros or something like that, right? Like it's very easy to say, okay, well, I'm going to get, you know, 50 grams of protein with this smoothie. And then I know I'm on track for the day. Um, but then there's also cool things like different, you know, powders and, and, um, you know, even like whole foods based supplements that you can add in there that just allow you to like really concentrate a lot of nutrient density into a single meal. So I'm a fan.
0: Yeah. Great. All right. So, uh, first of all, I meant to tell you before, I love that tip about herbs because I'll tell you what I do, which I will no yeah. longer do now that I've talked to you, but what I have done, which is just buy the, you know, whatever it is, the the um, cilantro, chop it up day one, use some in the soup or whatever, and then keep the rest of the chopped up stuff in a Ziploc bag in the fridge and the next day it has no flavor left right so yep. it sounds like the way to do it is what you said which is to keep it in a little bit of a cup with water with a Ziploc bag over the top or wrapped in some some uh, paper towels but still on the the stalk right so that it's still yeah
1: because what happens is when when you chop herbs they do start to oxidize a little bit so if you just leave them like that i mean it, it, a day or two you can get away with but after that they're going to be very flat Um, the other thing though, is like I mentioned having like herb sauces, but sometimes what I'll do if I have a bunch of herbs that are about to go bad is I'll, I'll just chop them all up, um, and put them like a little lemon juice, a little lemon zest, uh, maybe some like garlic and chopped up shallots and a bunch of olive oil and kind of create like a chimichurri style sauce out of them. And that'll actually preserve the um, the like flavor of the herbs for a long time because when they're in that oil, they're not going to oxidize like they were if they were just in open air. So you can have chopped up herbs that stay kind of fresh a
0: lot longer. Awesome, that's a great tip. Um, you know, a lot of recipes call for kosher salt. And I think a lot of people don't know what that is. What, what's the difference between kosher salt and regular salt? Man, you,
1: you have just stumped me because I actually – I don't know. I, I It's funny because I kind of know, but I, I've been confused myself, and I, I need to look up a proper answer to it. But I'm pretty sure that kosher refers to a grind size um and so like the most chefs if you ask them will tell you that the salt that they like to use the most is called diamond crystal kosher salt and it comes in a big red box you can find it everywhere it's affordable and um it is a great salt and what they like about it is it's the perfect grind size because what happens is kind of to some of the salting stuff i was talking about earlier if you have really thick flaky salt that's not going to season your food. It's going to just sit on the outside of the food. Um, what that's really meant for is after something is done cooking, you might add that flaky salt to get a little texture and crunch and a little bit of saltiness, but it's, it's more for um, that like texture than anything else. So what you want is a um, like finer salt that is going to coat like more evenly coat food. It's going to be able to d- dissolve quicker. Um, that's what you want to use for seasoning. So If I am correct, it refers to just that specific grind size that's, like, really universal and good. And um, Diamond Crystal Kosher Salt is amazing. There's another salt that I love that what I use as my everyday salt is called Vera Salt, V-E-R-A. And the reason I like that is because um, it is sourced from ancient springs. So it's like an old seabed in the mountains in Spain that has been untouched by modern contaminants. So one of the problems with... Our oceans today is they're so polluted that they've actually found like microplastics or contaminants inside of sea salt, which, you know, it's how much toxin exposure is that going to get you? I don't know. But salt does touch everything you cook. So I I feel like it is worth seeking out, you know, the cleanest one you can find. So I use Vera salt, but um Diamond Crystal Kosher Salt is also really good. What I do recommend though is find a salt you like and stick with that as your everyday salt, because that's how you're gonna develop that measure by feel that I talked about earlier. If you're switching up different brands of salt, you'd actually be shocked at how different they are in terms of like concentration and salinity and even like minute differences in the grind size. Um, so that's going to kind of interrupt your ability to to develop that, that sensory feel of how you're using it. So find one salt you like, pick that, keep that in your salt cellar, use that as your everyday salt. Um, and, you know, I would recommend a kosher grind for that because it's going to be the most versatile.
0: Great. Love it. I find that when it comes to seasonings, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have a spice drawer and it's got things in there and I bet some of those things are 15 years old and others we bought <laughs> yesterday, right? So, how do you know when it's time to buy a new jar of, you know, ground cumin or whatever it is?
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, I think that most people probably have a similar thing where there's really old spices in their drawer and um the bad news is After about a year or two, your spices are pretty much flat. Like they're just – they're going to add some color, but that's about it. Um, And, you know, if you want to experience spices at their absolute best, there are some brands that you can source from that source really fresh spices, and it's going to knock your socks off in terms of how intense and delicious those flavors are. So um, Burlap and Barrel, Diaspora Co., um, Smith and Trusslow, these are all brands that source really fresh spices and you can buy them direct to consumer, which is nice. You can order them online. and what that helps with is just ensuring that they haven't been sitting on a grocery store sh- shelf for forever. But truth is if your spices are older than a few years old or you're not sure it's probably better to just replace them with new ones. And what I like to tell people is that you know spices are really an amazing they're like an amazing hack to kind of add flavor to what you're cooking. Um, provided you you get good ones. And there's kind of like a few things to keep in mind. The first is that um, spice blends are a great way to do that. You know, like, because these there's sort of these like pre-mixed blends that give you instant access to a certain flavor profile. So I might have like a uh, Mexican spice blend that I'm going to use if I'm making ground beef that I'm going to use for tacos or something um you know maybe I'll have a more like Japanese inspired spice blend that I'll use on on some um chicken if I'm making like teriyaki bowls or something like that right um so spice blends are great and those brands I mentioned have some really good ones and I think it can be worth having like 3 or 4 spice blends that you like a lot on deck that you can kind of you know, use that to add some flavor and going back to the meal prep I talked about, like you could make, um, you know, a big sheet tray of chicken thighs that you roast half of them with the Mexican blend, half of them with the sort of Thai blend. And then you've got like different flavors that you can play with throughout the week. The second thing is I I recommend buying spice blends that don't have salt in them. And the reason is that like for all the things I mentioned earlier about salt, it's such an important ingredient that you kind of want to be able to like use that on its own Whereas when you have these spice blends that have salt in them, it makes it harder to measure how much salt you're adding versus how much of the spices. So I like spice blends that are salt free. Cause then you can add a bunch of the spice blend, get that flavor and then calibrate separately with salt. Cause that's really important. Nice. Um And then the final thing is just like, this applies to your whole pantry, but certainly to your spice cabinet. Is it's like, it's a personal thing. It's based on the flavors that you like to cook with most, right? So I lived in Mexico for two years. I love Mexican food. Like, if you look at my pantry, it's very Mexican leaning. So that means I have garlic powder, a bunch of chili powders, black pepper, cinnamon, allspice. Like, those are the, the main spices I have in my pantry. But if you cook a lot of Chinese food and love those flavors, you're going to have a different set of spices, So I tell people, like, kind of figure out what flavor profiles you want to cook with most and then buy those spices. But don't feel like you need to go out and buy a, you know, 100-set spice uh, cabinet because most of them you're not going to use. They're going to end up going bad. And you really just want to, you know, use the stuff that fits in with the flavor profiles that you like the most. So it's like my spice cabinet usually consists of, like, a couple of blends and then maybe, like, five or six spices of the flavor profiles that I that I cook with the most, and that's it. And then I'll change them up. You know, I'll I'll go through them in their entirety and change them up when when they get old.
0: Very cool. Does the does the smell test help? I mean, if I grab I don't know the thyme out of my cabinet and I sniff it, if it smells you know pungent, is that a good sign that it's still usable or definitely. It, do I need to? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. The smell test. I mean, it, it'll smell very flat if you if it's if it's way too old, and you'll notice it. You're just not picking up on it, and it'll yep. even like. If you, you know, say you have some really old paprika, you're going to smell it. It's not going to smell like much. If you buy some paprika from Burlap and Barrel, you're going to smell that and it's just going to, it's going to blow your mind. It's so, so fragrant and flavorful.
0: That's awesome. Um, Pepper, you know, a lot of recipes say, you know, uh, fresh ground pepper. Um, I find that much more aromatic than obviously just the kind of canned black pepper. Um, Do you agree? Should we be grinding our own black pepper for use in recipes that call for pepper?
1: Yes, definitely. So, same uh, concept as with the fresh herbs. Uh, spices oxidize. So, from the moment you crack open a peppercorn, it's exposed to a lot more air because you've all of a sudden made the surface area much wider. So, it's going to oxidize much faster. And with certain herbs, it matters, or with certain herbs and spices, it matters more or less. Pepper, black pepper, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not actually sure why, but it's one of those ones that just benefits a lot from being fresh cracked. And so um, I say, like, buy peppercorns whole, get yourself a, a pepper grinder, um, like burlap and barrel on some of these other ones. They'll they'll sell you peppercorns that come in a grinder. That's a great way to do it. Um, and it makes a big difference. And like that's another general rule of thumb with spices is that whole spices will store a lot longer than ground spices because they um, take a lot longer to oxidize. Awesome. Um, Can I say one more thing on pepper? Because this is an important point. Yes. So a lot of people kind of have this conception that salt and pepper are this like all purpose seasoning duo that everything should be seasoned with salt and pepper. And I like to explain to people that that's not the case. Salt is, as I was saying before, it's a mineral and it is this kind of tool that we use to bring out the existing flavors in food. It's the most important ingredient in all of cooking. Pepper is awesome, but pepper is a is a spice. Pepper belongs in the same category as paprika, garlic, you know, thyme, all of that stuff. It's not in the same category as salt. And what pepper does is pepper brings a new flavor to food. Salt makes food, you know, enhances the existing flavors. Pepper makes food taste like black pepper. So sometimes you want to add black pepper. Great. No, nothing wrong with that, but you shouldn't think of salt and pepper as this like all purpose duo. I really like to tell people think of salt as this like very special, unique ingredient that you're going to use every time you're cooking. Think of pepper as one of many herbs that you have, many herbs and spices that you have in your repertoire that you could use to enhance, uh, to, to
0: add new flavors to food. Awesome. That's a great point. Miles, we covered a lot of really great stuff and great tips, and of course, we will put um, access and links to your um, various uh, social media and uh, blogs that people can check out if they want to get more details. Um, but before we move on, anything uh, that we didn't cover that you want to give people a tip about?
1: I mean, I think I think we covered some really good territory. Like this is this is a lot of the kind of like fundamentals that I that I talk about. Um, I would say, yeah. I mean, I think that like seasoning salt and acidity, um, meal prep. Those are all really important things. You know, the, the kind of other thing that I, that I teach in my course is, um, a lot of like heat management, learning about different types of heat and how to leverage that. Um, th- those are important things to know. I guess the final thing I'll say is that, um, on, on sort of like tools and cookware and things like that, there are a lot of companies out there that are trying to sell you a bunch of stuff that you don't actually need at inflated prices and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Another link that I'll send you is I put together I call it my minimalist guide to cookware but um it is true that like you only need a few choice pots, pans, knives, cutting board thing like things like that and I say opt for like a higher quality version that's going to last you longer um and just get the few things that you're going to need that you actually need and you're going to use again and again. Um, and so I have a whole list of those that I'll, I'll share with your listeners. Um, But, yeah, that's another thing. Like, you don't need to break the bank to start cooking. And especially if you're starting from scratch and don't have, you know, much in the way of, of cookware or this or that. Like, I can show you the the very basics that you need to get started and you don't need to spend a money a ton of money to do it. And you'll be able to, you know, get some stuff that's going to be very versatile and last you a long time and serve you well.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks. That'd be great to have those links as well. Well, let's move to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Miles, is there something you'd recommend the audience check out for fun? I, this is such a unique episode that there's all this stuff that I'm sure they're going to check out for fun, but in addition to the things we've talked about. Okay. I mean, is this like a product recommendation, an experience? Anything. you? I would say, you know, often I will recommend a, a TV show or a movie or a book, but it could be okay. anything you think would be fun for people to check out.
1: Okay. I'm going to recommend... um your your listeners are very, like, busy, hardworking doctors. So if they get a chance to take a vacation and treat themselves, uh, I'm going to recommend a location called San Sebastian in northern Spain. And in my opinion, that is some of the best eating I've ever done anywhere in the world. Um, and it's a really fun place to go. And, um, I just love it. I think it's a little bit, um, underrated, like a lot of chefs I know love this location and talk about it, but, um, you know, fewer kind of people who aren't in the food world view it as like a must see destination, but it's this beautiful small town in Northern Spain, um, with an intensely proud and deep and rich food culture. It has some of the highest concentration of Michelin stars per capita of anywhere in the world, but it's not just about fancy dining. In fact, most of what you do there is kind of hop from bar to bar eating these, like, small tapas and drinking. And um, it's located kind of in the north of Spain, so you get this amazing seafood from those cold waters. It's really close to France, so they end up bringing a bunch of really great French ingredients in. And it's just a very, very special place that has amazing food. And, like, it's, you know, top few destinations for me for best places in the world to eat.
0: Awesome. Man, that is uh, the way better than any uh, of my books. <laughs> I want to do that. Um, well, I will recommend, it. my wife and I just finally finished The Crown, the TV show, Netflix, that has, it's. this was the sixth and final season. Uh, you know, it's not, you don't think of it and think, oh, that's such an exciting show. It's a. Tr- it's based in reality about the uh, reign of Elizabeth II. But I will say that we've really enjoyed it. And they did a very nice job, I thought, of ending it with the final season. Um, and so if you're at all interested, I would check out The Crown, uh, the whole thing, and then certainly this most recent and final season six. Good to
1: know. Well, I, I need a new TV show to watch anyway,
0: so that's you check it out. We've enjoyed it. Well, Miles, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A C C R A C where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash acrac or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.